thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we continue our Bible study with chapter 26 of the book of Genesis. And uh, this continues the story of uh, um, Isaac as um, he goes or he undergoes the same challenges, the same struggles that his father Abraham had undergone. So if you have scripture with you, please turn to chapter 26 of the book of Genesis, and let's then read together what is being presented to us in uh, this chapter. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will fulfill the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and will give to your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. When the man of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me for the sake of Rebekah, because she was fair to look upon. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac fondling Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, She is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. 
And Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names which his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of springing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and over that they did not quarrel. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and will bless you, and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzaz, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord is with you, so we say, Let there be an oath between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have not done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and took oath with one another, and Isaac sent, set, uh, set them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba, therefore the name of the city is Beer Sheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Basimat, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. The characterization of Isaac across the entire chapter is that he is a man of peace. In all his dealings with the people of the land, he does nothing to create tension. He does nothing to confront people, even though they acknowledge that he is mightier than they. He could have taken things by force. He could have pushed them out, and he does none of it. And there is a fundamental reason why he do it this way. It isn't just because he personally loves peace. Remember, Scripture is not just about the personal characterization of people. Because if this was so, it would become a particular story. Then the way Abraham behaved would not be reproducible. The way Isaac behaved would not be reproducible. It would be something that they could only do, much like Superman is the only one that can fly in the sky. None of us can. But that's not at all the case. The fundamental reason that is pushing Isaac to act this way is the covenant. God promised, God will fulfill in his own good time. And somehow Isaac understands that the end never justifies the means. It isn't because God promised him the land, a good thing, 
that he will resort to violence, unprovoked violence, a bad thing, to attain that good. He will not do so. And for many of us, there is the temptation. Therein is the temptation. The end never justifies the means. Well, we want to stop abortion, so why don't we resort to violence? Right? We want to you know, end some evil. Why don't we resort to violence? Why don't we just force the issue? Because at the end of the day, what has to matter for all of us isn't the temporary the temporary solution we may come up with. By this I mean here on earth. We need to look to eternity. And if in doing what we're doing, we're causing more people to go to hell, if in doing what we're doing, we're causing more people to move away from God, then how could that be a good thing? It could never be a good thing. Now look at the, look at the result of Isaac. Look at what happens. In his life is fulfilled those words of St. Francis of Assisi who said, Preach always and whenever necessary use words. But preach always and whenever necessary use words. It is your life that is the preaching that you do. It is far more powerful than any words you can speak. I'll always remember this witness given by a Chinese bishop who was tortured and who was kept in solitary confinement for seven years in the dark. Enough to drive a man crazy. And after that, when he was old and sick, they allowed him to leave the country. And he came here to the United States and was invited to a conference in which many had already spoken. So they helped him up to the podium, and he stood there, and he said four words. Four words. No Pope, no church. No Pope, no church. That's all he said. But the life of suffering and that he had undergone... For these four words had actually was actually his preaching. He didn't say to say anything more. So in our life today, how are we like Isaac? How is our life preaching to others? And we can start with the very basic, because usually when these questions are asked, we tend to go we may be tempted to go straight away to the heroic. Right? Things like martyrdom and uh, major significant events. But most of the time, the witnessing has nothing to do with any of these big things. It has a lot to do with very small things, which I have pointed to you on on numerous occasions, but it's always a good thing to be reminded of. When you eat at a restaurant with your friends, with your non-Catholic friends, with your colleagues, with your boss, you're all together eating, Do you do the sign of the cross before you eat? If not, how are you a Catholic? It starts right there. In those moments where we might be embarrassed, 
And in those moments where we might be embarrassed, it might do us a good, a great good of deal to remember the word of Jesus Christ. He who is ashamed of me before men, I shall be ashamed of him before my Father. You, you, your actions and mine are never neutral. There isn't just one side in the equation the people were facing. They're just, they're just one side. There's the invisible side. Always present. Always there. Your garden angel. Okay? So, if I were to see you on campus and I looked at you, by your demeanor, by the way you walk, by the way you talk, by your conversation, by your looks, can I say, here is someone who takes his faith seriously? If I can't distinguish you from someone who lives like a pagan, who is a pagan, how are you giving witness to Jesus Christ? If at work, your deportment, your behavior, isn't one of peace, how are you giving witness to Jesus Christ? If when you come to church, you come in and you sit down and you start chatting, or you haven't, Mass has ended and you're taking off and you're still inside the church and you're talking, what is that saying about you? About your awareness of the presence of God. The way you dress, how does it speak about your sense of belonging to Jesus Christ? All those things come to mind when you look at the life of Isaac and Rebekah. And that's what we're going to do in this chapter. Take a closer look at this. Now, the word Philistines that you've heard here is kind of confusing because the Philistines as we know them entered Palestine or Canaan essentially after the invasion of the Sea People in 1200, 1200 before Christ. And they broke the Egyptian control over the area. And so there are mentioned in the records of Ramses, between 1182 and 1151 before Christ, they established the Pentapolis of five major cities, Gaza, Gath, Ashod, Ekron, and Ashkelon, along the southern coastal plain, and quickly gained political control over nearby regions as well. So, Genesis, these events happened before 1200 BC, as we've seen actually last time, where we saw that uh, the fact that the word Arab was never mentioned indicated an ancient text. So, those events happened before 1200 BC, and yet they're talking about Philistines. So, the only way we can understand this is that. Um, Either it's reflecting an earlier group that settled in Canaan before 1200 BC, or it's an anachronism. So, 
And an anachronism is when you, you move an event from its actual period to a different period, either in the past or in the future. So something is anachronistic if you say, uh, in 1722, NASA flew its first shuttle. You know, this something is wrong because there was no NASA and there's certainly no shuttle in 1722, right? Or conversely, if you said that in, uh, in 2010, the number of horse carriages on the 405 grew by 10%, you have an anachronism because this cannot be the case. Right? So, we, we can't tell which is which, right? Um, it could be that the author decided to use Philistines to indicate the behavior of these people, stating that that's how they behave. They behave much like the Philistines. We really don't know. So there's these areas in Scripture where we're, we're at loss. We don't have enough archaeological data to support one way or the other. Now, let's look at the situation of Isaac. He's again struck by famine. You see these famines are recurring. They happen all the time. And he decides to do what his father has done before him, which is go down to the delta of the Nile River to stem the famine. But in his case, God speaks to him and says, do not leave the land. Stay in the land and I will take care of you. Now, when he looks around in the land, there is a famine. So it does require, on his part, a real act of faith. Because there is nothing that his senses are telling him that would support, logically speaking, him staying in the land. You see, God knows that in a specific case, it would require something that goes against human wisdom. If Isaac were to rely on human wisdom alone, he would decide, I should go down to Egypt. That would be the wise thing to do. He's got flocks, he's got herds, he's got people to take care of, and around him there is famine. God knows that, and so God intervenes in a supernatural fashion to counteract this human wisdom. Because he is a man of the covenant, because he is a man of prayer. And again, one more time, this isn't because it's specific to Isaac. It is about all of us. God would work in our lives in similar ways, and he does, provided that we are people of the covenant. We take his covenant seriously. When we do that, God is in our life. You see, a good training, a good preparation is when you have, um, when there is an obstacle along your way, when you're, you have a disappointment, you were planning on uh, going with a friend to have an ice cream and you're looking for it for the past six months because you couldn't eat ice cream. And that evening, something happens that prevents you from going. 
how do you react? Are you able to, keep, to stay level-headed past the initial uh, disappointment and say, well, God has something else in mind? Are you able to enter into conversation with God over this event? Can you see in it His intervention, His loving intervention? And when you do that, when you enter into this conversation with Him, then God enters in conversation with us. We show that he, we take him seriously. He then, in return, take us, takes us seriously. So, what plans have you made for your life? Have you decided outright that you're going to be doing A, B, C, and D without involving him? Have you planned your vacations without involving him? Are you looking for a job without involving him? If that's what you're doing, then in return, he will leave you alone. And you shouldn't be, logically speaking, counting on him to answer your prayer only when you decide that you need him. It doesn't work that way. I mean, you would not want to be treated like this. Would you like a friend of yours who never talks to you, who never calls you, who never comes to see you, until that friend needs you to come and do the dishes. Would you like that? Well, uh, more, more often than not, we treat God like that. We've got our plans made. Especially the little things. Especially the little things. Oh, I want to go see a movie tonight. Call your friend. Want to go see a movie? Yeah, okay, great. Let's go. God is not in the picture. You're not taking God with you to the movies. Why? Why should you allow God to share in your pleasure? Ah, but, oh, my foot is hurting. I have an exam. All right, let me now dial in God. And then we wonder, why is he, how come he's not answering? We should not presume of God's goodness. That's the whole idea. Because it's really the sin of presumption. To assume that God is just this very kindly, mildly fat Santa Claus, sitting out there having nothing to do, who's just waiting for us to call. And whenever we call, he's always saying, yes, dearie, and always giving us what we want. And nothing would be further from the truth. God isn't like that. So again, I really want to stress this fact God spoke to, I, to Isaac and told him, stay in this land, because number one, he knew that Isaac was a man of faith, and number two, he knew that Isaac was ready to hear his voice. And Isaac did. And you notice, there is not a word of questioning on Isaac's part. Where? How? How much? What's the interest rate? When am I going to get it? How long do I have to wait? Do I get an insurance policy with it? Nothing. Not a word. He, doesn't, he just stays. Now, script, Scripture says nothing about it, but he's got to explain it to all the other people. Okay, so, uh, God spoke to me. He did? Yep. What did he say? 
we're staying. Just imagine scorched land, right? Not a lot of greeneries and maybe not a lot of water. And a lot of sheep going around wanting something to eat. We stay here? Yep. Here. Oh. I'm sure a bunch of guys would have said, is he, I mean, is he, is this God talking to him? This is somebody else. It's not easy. It was not easy to do what he did. Don't, I mean, the problem with scripture is that it's so terse that we think, okay, you know, God told him, you stay. Isaac said, yep, I stay. Everybody else in chorus said, yes, we stay. And everybody's smiling like in veggie tails and dancing and holding hands. Well, you know what? It doesn't happen this way. Doesn't happen this way. It's the same struggles, the same difficulties, the same reality that is facing us today, right now, right now, right within the context we're living in, the economy being what it is, and you know the forces of evil doing whatever they're doing out there. So many people you talk to have a sense that the end of the world is coming. Actually, the world thinks this way. The world breeds despair. I have already mentioned to you some time ago, 2012. No doubt you've heard about it now. There are movies coming out on 2012, right? December 21st, 2012 is when the Mayan calendar, Mayan calendar come to an end. And so the end of the world is coming. The world is like that. There is no hope, right? It's a scorched land. There's nothing. You get all these sheep, you need to feed them. And you rely on human wisdom alone, you conclude there is no hope. We have no water, global warming is upon us, the economy is down the tube, and who else, you know, and maybe we're going to, you know, I don't know, an alien invasion soon, and who knows what else is in the pipeline, right? The end of the world is coming. And what does Jesus say? What is he saying to us today? What were the first words that John Paul II spoke on that balcony when he was made Pope? Fear not. Do not be afraid. I have conquered the world. Are those words true in your life? Do you live in the peace of Christ? Do you live like Isaac lived? No insurance, by the way, in his case. No health plan. No antibiotics. No dishwashers. No washing machines. No iPods. No internet. Not that. I don't know how they were able to survive this one for that long. But be it as it may. None of that stuff. He had no security. And to top it off, he was a resident alien. He had no rights, like his father, before him. Can you live like that? A great source of consolation has always been the Psalms. The Psalms. I I, I strongly recommend that every night you read one of the Psalms. David lived like that. He was pursued by Saul who was on his case, he was, his life was in danger all the time, and he had no place he could call home. He was a fugitive when he composed most of the songs. Read them. See the faith that is shining through. 
This is not just the life of Isaac. It is the life of all of us that is portrayed to us in these stories. Here is what St. John Chrysostom says. Now, it is likely that Isaac also made for, um, for there on, a, on account of his intention to continue on from there to, into Egypt. For proof of this, listen to what Scripture says. God appeared to him and said, don't go down into Egypt. I do not want you to make that long journey, he is saying, but to stay here. Instead of allowing you to experience that hardship, I'm going to put into effect the promise made to your father. The promises to him will be fulfilled in you, and you will experience the pledges to him. Don't go down into Egypt, but dwell in the land that I show you, and be a sojourner in this land. The point of St. Saint Saint, Saint John Chrysostom is that despite all appearances, God will show upon Isaac his blessing. And despite all appearances, God will shower upon us His blessings if we live covenantally. Origen says, The Apostle Paul set forth two figures of this Isaac to us. One about which he said that Ishmael indeed, the son of Hagar, represented the people according to the flesh. But Isaac, the the people who are of faith. The other about which he said, He did not say, and to his seeds as of many, but to his seed as of one, which is Christ. Isaac, therefore, represents the people and Christ. Now it is certain that Christ is spoken of as the word of God, not only in the Gospels, but also in the Law and Prophets. But in the Law, he teaches beginners. In the Gospels, he teaches the perfect. And Isaac, therefore, represents now the word that is in the Law or the Prophets. And the point of of origin is that Isaac is a figure of Christ. He is the one who represents for us um, Jesus Christ who comes and unlike Ishmael brings for us life through faith. And we are to be his imitators. We are to be the ones who are to imitate him in everything. So, you can see him therefore staying in this land. But now notice, God tells him stay here. But he doesn't tell him what to do. He doesn't say to him, go there or here. He doesn't say, watch over there. Just you know, go and dig and you'll find a big treasure. He doesn't tell him how this is going to happen. He leaves it up to Isaac. And so it is with us. So it is with us. Most of our life is like this. God gives us the grace we need to do what we must. And so the two sayings that you keep in mind, one by St. Augustine, St. Augustine, I think it's St. Augustine, Um, although I'm not completely sure, but I think it's St. Augustine. Pray as if everything depended upon God. And work as if everything depends on you. Hmm? 
And an interesting twist, St. Um, Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order, said, pray as if everything depended on you. And work as if everything depended on God. And leave it up to you to really meditate on those two sayings and see how both of them harmonize and why both of them are true. But I'll give you an example. The example is that of... uh, Oh, they took her away. Mother Teresa. Um, When she went to San Francisco, she wanted a house. And I'm sure you're all aware that San Francisco isn't the cheapest place. So it's kind of a little bit of an oxymoron to have a house for the poorest of the poor in San Francisco, where the house will probably be worth, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. But nonetheless, she wanted a house in San Francisco. And they, you know, they were taking on a tour and showing her different properties, and then she found one that she liked. She said, that's the one. That's the one she wanted. And they told her, well, mother... uh, (laughs) You know, that, that's, that's very expensive. And mother's answer was, oh, no, 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 don't worry. She took a miraculous medal, threw it over the wall. God will take care of it. And that's the one she got. Right? Work as if everything depended on God. So you can see that what St. Ignatius of Loyola is saying is sort of a perfection in the life of the Spirit compared to the initial stage of which St. Augustine speaks. That's the difference between the two. And we are all called to get to that level of inner peace where no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what seeming setback we encounter, no matter what difficulty we face, no matter what um, danger is looming upon us, we live in peace. Because at the end of the day, it is God who is our rock, our salvation, our safety. He's the one that allows us to lay down and sleep in peace. Psalm 7. Not anything else. Not anything else. Hmm? But we have to exercise judgment. We have to be careful. We can't allow ourselves to do Whatever happens around us. Isaac lived there. He went to live close to Abimelech. But he didn't do like them. He didn't imitate their lifestyle. And obviously there were some problems with their lifestyle. Because he was afraid or concerned. Just as his father was. That someone might lay with his wife. That tells us something about the moral conduct of the people around him. He did not allow them To influence him. On the contrary. He is the one who influenced them. So. In our. Behavior. When it comes to important events. How do we behave? You know. When when we prepare a wedding. What do we do? Are we doing it like the pagans? When we prepare a funeral. Are we doing it like the pagans? When we do a baptism. Are we doing it like the pagans? 
Are we aware of our social surrounding? Do we make choices based on our faith? Another good example. Your sister is getting married. Your niece is getting married. Do you ask the proper questions? Is she married to a Catholic? Is this a Catholic wedding? If you know that she's getting married to a man who is divorced, what do you do? What is the right thing to do for you? You do not go. Yeah. And you have to communicate it charitably, simply by saying, I am really sorry, but in all good conscience, I cannot be a witness to this wedding. Because when you go and you participate, you are a public witness to that union, you're saying it's A-OK. And here we go again. God, the mildly fat Santa Claus, we call upon Him only when we need Him. But other than that, we conduct our affairs on our own. Can't do that. Yes? They're different. Exactly. But see, those are the questions. Must be asked. If you know that she's decided to marry someone who's not a Catholic, right? And they're going to have a new age ceremony. And I'm not making those things up. These are actual events I'm aware of. What do you do? You cannot be there. Right? Now, let's take another situation. A friend of yours, a good friend, who happens to be, let's say, uh, Lutheran, invites you to the wedding. It's a Lutheran wedding. And this friend of yours is getting married to a Lutheran person. So two Lutherans are getting married in a Lutheran church. What do you do? You go and what? What? And you sit at the back of the building, it's not a church, and you do not participate in the event. You cannot participate in this event. It would be hypocritical. Why? Because when you take part in something that looks like a liturgy, celebrated publicly, what are you saying? We are all one. We're all united. Is that true? We're not. Jesus Christ is truth. You're going to go there and proclaim something that is not the truth? Because it's convenient? Do you see what I'm trying to get at? Those are the things that are going to hit you in your life. It's important for you to know how to behave. You bring a friend of yours to the church. She, and you know this friend of yours is living with her boyfriend. Or he's living with his girlfriend. Or both of them are with you. They decided to come with you. It's Christmas. Just happened to be visiting. They stayed at your place or just there. And it's Christmas Eve and everybody's going and they decided, hey, we're going with you as well. What are you supposed to do? Let's assume they're Catholics. What do you do? 
What are you duty bound to do in that case? And I would really appreciate that you behave a little bit more like uh, gospel Protestants and raise your voices. Because muttering doesn't help me. Pardon? Okay, tell them not to take communion. That's a good beginning. They're Catholics. They've been living together. And they decided to go with you to Christmas Mass. What do you do? Thank you. You have to tell them, look, you need to go to confession. It's important for you. You can't receive communion in the state that you're in. Because your state is incompatible with the Catholic Church. Now, let's make that a little fun. Right? Let's say you are a woman, and it just so happens that this is your best friend. And you tell her that, and she starts crying. How do you feel? Awful. You'd feel awful. Come on. You don't feel good. She's crying because she's upset with you. And his, her boyfriend is doubly upset with you. And they would rather not talk to you at all. Right? It's hard. Do you understand? It's hard. But Jesus Christ does not accept, expect anything else. Why? A man came to him. Rabbi, I want to follow you. But let me go and bury my father. The guy didn't say, Rabbi, I want to follow you, but you know what? I just want to go by Las Vegas one more time. That's not what he said. Let me go bury my father. What did Jesus say? Okay, I just want you to imagine the situation. They're standing eye to eye. The guy's just telling Jesus, I want to go bury my father. He's probably sad. His father passed away. He's not in the best mood. Hmm? Poor, good, loving, gentle, meek Jesus says, Let the dead bury the dead. Now imagine it's you. Now he's talking about your mom, your aunts, your uncles, your family. Let the dead Bury the dead. Have you heard this in any horror movie out there? I mean, in a horror movie, you won't have a statement like this. They won't dare show it on the TV. Well, maybe they would today. I don't know. I'll show anything. But I mean, it's, if you think about it, if you visualize it for what it is, Jesus just spoke the truth. Let the dead. They're dead. It wasn't a simile. It wasn't... He wasn't trying to be poetic. That is the truth. They're, they're zombies. Well, in the real sense, that's what they are. Let the dead bury the dead. That's what you're called to. This is what Isaac was called to. He lived... Among these people, he lived right in the middle of them. There's a tendency these days among Catholics to almost create a ghetto. Let's go create a ghetto for ourselves. Where everybody's Catholic, 
everybody goes to church on Sunday, and everybody does Bible study, and everybody does exactly the whole thing. And you, you know what's going to happen when we do this? The devil finds his way right in the middle of this wonderful community. Right? There is no such thing as heaven on earth in the full sense of the term. It doesn't exist. What is it? No. You live in the world. You're not of the world. But you're called to give witness. You're called to give witness. Okay, so be on the lookout of your behavior. You go to a party, know what you're getting yourself into. As soon as you see improper behavior at the party, as soon as you see it, when you see improper behavior publicly displayed in a party, what are you supposed to do? You leave. You cannot give witness. Your presence gives witness. Right? Okay, you, can't, you cannot, under any circumstance, go to anywhere other than maybe the bathroom when the proportion of covered parts of your body to the uncovered parts of the body is greater than 15%. Can't do that. But you see, our problem is that our conscience has been so much, so much modified by the world. Our standards are worldly. that unless there is a true awakening of the heart, unless there is a true love of Jesus burning in our heart, and the love of the church, what I'm talking about right now sounds as foreign as if a Martian were to appear to you right now and start talking to you about how you grow lettuce on Mars. It's your conscience that needs to find the truth. And be conformed with the truth. Just as it was the case with Isaac. That's why those chapters are laid before us. Because when we meditate on them. The way we're doing it right now. We are struck. And by wonder. At the behavior of this man. God promised him. I will bless you in the middle of the famine. I will bless you when there is a famine. What is that indicative of? It is indicative of what St. Paul spoke about much later. When sin increases, grace super increases. When sin increases, grace super increases. Now I had some friends who knew the law, I mean actually the the law stated by St. Thomas Aquinas, it is ignorance that saves. The notion that if you didn't know something was wrong, well, you have a chance of being saved. So whenever we would be talking about something, the immediate reaction would be, I don't want to know, I don't want to know. Because, you know, if I can stay ignorant, then I have to deal with it. But that's ignoring the grace of God. God doesn't transmit knowledge and truth to you and me without giving us the grace we need to live it. Therefore, from grace upon grace, we grow in glory. God is always giving us what we need and the strength we need to live according to his word should we choose it. The choice is ours. That's what's important. Now, again, 
it is repeated. I want to point out to you the whole destiny of Israel in God's mind. The reason why Israel was chosen was to bless the nations. God never chose Israel as in you're my chosen people and everybody else is dirt and garbage. He chose Israel as the firstborn and I showed you genealogically that that's the case. So that through Israel, all the other nations are blessed. That same principle applies in your home. Amongst your friends. If you are the only Catholic in a group of friends, you're wondering, what am I doing here? Why is God doing this to me? Can't I find somebody else? You are the firstborn. In that group. That's the role you have to play. God is calling upon you to guide others. And you'd probably react the way Moses reacted. At least you'd understand why he reacted the way he did. Who? Me? Well, I don't know how to talk. You know, God, I don't know. I, I can't type on a keyboard. I'm taking physics and math and, and I'm busy. Can't you find somebody else? I mean, you might find that funny, but you know what? When I get folks writing to me emails with basic questions, that are, who's, which, and the answer is found in the catechism, or in scripture, I don't, I don't find that very, very funny. God is expecting you and me to do what we must, and learn, and learn about our faith. To the, you know, according to our abilities. But we have to make at least an effort. Everybody can open the catechism. I'm not saying everybody may necessarily understand what's in the catechism. But at least if you went to somebody and said, Hey, I read paragraph 1217, and I don't understand what it says. At least you read it. Instead, hey, uh, where does it say that uh, in order to be saved, we have to be baptized? You see my point? Take your face seriously. I'll throw one at you, especially the ladies. This is for you. And actually, no, the men as well. You're going to love me for this one. Um, in St. Paul, I'm not going to tell you exactly where, but in St. Paul, he very clearly states that women should wear a head cover in the church. It's stated black on white. Okay? Now, I am not going to tell you right now, go out this minute, buy one and come back. That's not, that's not my point. Because at the end of the day, faith is not about coercion. You should never be forced to believe something. Faith does not work like that. God is not trying to force you, you know, twist your arm. Go write a hundred lines. I will believe. I will believe. It's not, it doesn't work this way. Right? But my point is that it is a statement in the Gospel of St. Paul, which none of the fathers ever refuted. They're all unanimous over this, that women should wear a head cover in the church. Here's what I want to ask you to think about. When you stand before 
the throne of God. When you face Jesus Christ for your own personal judgment. I'm not talking about the women only here. I'm talking about the women and the men. Hmm? Will Jesus ask you about that? Will he say to you, did you know that this was written in the scriptures? Now you might say, well, no, I didn't. And you might think, I'm home free. Then he will ask you, didn't you know that it was your duty as a Catholic to read the scriptures and be informed? And if you say, well, no, I didn't. Then he might ask you, then how can you claim membership in my church? Wouldn't that be fair? I mean, if you go to work, don't they tell you how you're supposed to dress? What is acceptable in the corporate environment? Don't you get that right away? You get it almost by osmosis. You know. You make an effort to know. Right? Can you just decide, oh, you know what? It's Tuesday. I'll work at home today. Well, why not? Ah, you're out. But Jesus, sweet, meek, gentle, Santa Claus, Jesus, would never do anything like that. Would he now? Why should I take his church seriously? Why should I take the teachings of the church seriously? Why should I do anything about it? Do, do you understand the challenge that you and I face in our life before God? Do you understand why often he will not answer our prayers? We don't take him seriously. We take him seriously when it's serious. When in a serious business. Now it's really serious. We go back to, you know, the mildly fat Santa Claus and we want, you know, please send us the help we need right now. But that's about it. So many other things like this. This is just one example. Are you making even the smidget of an effort to truly understand your religion on your own? Is that part of your calendar? Is it on your Blackberry? Does it have a spot on your iPod? Is it anywhere on your horizon? Or are you just counting on me to be the nagging voice of your conscience? Because that's, that's not what I am. And I can never be that. Do you understand? Isaac, that's striking. Not a word. He stays in the land. He lives amongst them. And he's afraid that they might kill him on account of his... I mean, imagine this. He knows the situation. He knows how hard it is to live among these people. And he stays. He's afraid they will kill him on account of his wife. I mean, we don't live in a situation like this here. You just don't, you're not walking outside living in a you know, Sherman tank because you're afraid somebody's going to kill you when you walk with your, with your wife. He did it. He trusted in God. Now, 
Notice again, by the way, the name Abimelech, we've seen that name before with, uh, with Abraham. It must be very similar to the Edwards and the various royal names where name recurs over and over again, right? The Edwards, the Louis, right? One, one king's name, Abimelech, the first, the second, right? Or like this guy who was a basketball player, I think. His name was George something or some sports player. Pardon? See, I'm, I'm always amazed how people can quote things like that on the spur of the moment. But when it comes to scripture, what, what was that again? And that's not, nothing, nothing, I'm not trying to put, I'm not trying to put fatty on the spot here. Not at all. But it's amazing. Ah, I just, I'm. Anyhow, well, yeah, George Foreman had five boys. George, 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 and George. He likes the name George. So, Abimelech, probably a name that repeats. Anyhow, notice, whoever touches this man or his wife shall be put to death. Why? Because he tells him, what is this you have done to us? One of the, peop- one of the people might easily have lain with your wife. Now, you might think, Oh, good old Abimelech. He's concerned about his wife. No, 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 no. He couldn't care less about his wife. Hmm? And you would have brought guilt upon us. That's what he's concerned with. In other words, Abimelech is completely aware of the corporate guilt. The guilt brought upon everyone when one person lays with someone else's wife. Now, uh, do, do you think this applied only in that case? And we have nothing to do with it today? Do you think the collective consequence of personal sins doesn't apply to us today? No, it's not. It's the covenant. Right? It's the covenant. The covenant works this way. Anytime somebody is going to commit a sin or breaks the covenant in the family, he's not the only one affected. Right? The family is affected. And even without having to go to high spirituality, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have a family and the father is a gambler. And he's spending his entire paycheck on gambling. What happens to the family? Physically. It's a hardship. Right? Emotionally. It's horrible. The stress level. Right? And then spiritually. Here we can see the direct consequences. Right? We can see it. Physically. In other cases, it's more subtle. I mean, whether it's gambling or being a drunk, right? We can see it directly. But there are other cases where it isn't. But it is nonetheless true and strong. Contraception being one of them. The most deceiving of all these sins is contraception. And I've told you this on many, many cases where I would have meet somebody who would look at me and say, you got seven kids? And these days I get another question. They're all from the same woman? And I was in a train, I met this woman, I was talking to her, and she said, they're all from the same woman? And I said, yeah, I thought it was, she was 
being funny. She looked at me, well, what's so funny? I have, there's me, there's my half-brother, and there's my step-brother. My father's married three times. She didn't think it was funny at all. When I meet these people who ask me this question, and I say, yes, I have seven kids, they tend to say many times, wait till they become teenagers. And I, I almost instinctively feel like asking, how long have you been contracepting? Because you know what? I have teenagers now. I am during this phase of my life where I have youth in my house. And yes, there are irritations and frustrations and difficulties. The difficulties you'd expect in helping youth become grown-ups. They're trying to figure out who they are, what they want, and their direction and their future. And they're stressed by school, you know, where we send them every day like we're sending people to jail. My own opinion. Anyhow... And that sort of stuff. But I don't have a situation where my kids are rebellious and fighting with me. And I have obedient children. And I'm not the only one. There's a whole bunch of families out there that have exactly the same thing. There's nothing special about me. It's just God's covenant. You live according to the covenant. You reap according to the covenant. You don't live according to the covenant. You don't reap according to the covenant. That's the truth. That's how it works. That's how it's supposed to work. But anytime we take things in our, our hands, no, God, two kids is enough. We, we know better than you. And besides, you know, having seven kids is embarrassing. And what are gonna, people going to say about us? Two is cool. We're right there, in the median, on the, in the average. We fit. Yeah, you fit. You fit. You don't know what you're fitting, but you fit. It's only later you'll discover it. Go to the hospital. See all the old people in hospitals. Dying alone. Nobody's there for them. Nobody. I mean nobody. No visits. Nothing. Well, retrace the life of these people. Their kids were in daycare. Mom wasn't home. You reap what you sow. We live our life as if it's free. There are no consequences. We set the kids to, to, to daycare. We're never home. We're never there for them. We're doing what we have to do. Re, you know, going after money and this and that. God has nothing to do with the picture. He cannot find a situation. No, there's no way. There's no way God will allow my wife to be at home. He cannot solve that problem. It's too complicated. We absolutely have to work, both of us. We're not going to ask him. We're not going to put that in his hands and let him deal with it. No. He cannot solve it. See how we create these situations on our own? We don't allow God to take care of it. I'm not saying that suddenly he's going to make it happen right away. I'm not saying he's going to get you to be out of the workforce instantly. It might take years. But are you calling upon his name? Are you asking his help? Are you allowing him to make the decision? Or have you made the decision for him? Because guess what? When you put everything in his hand, when you're suffering, knowing that your kids are not home, and you're not home as a mother, that suffering 
is redemptive. That suffering is a blessing. That suffering will make up, and the kids will feel it. The kids will know about it. And when you grow old, and you become cranky, and difficult, and demanding, and selfish, because of your pains and aches and everything else, they'll be around you. They'll make that sacrifice. That's the grace of God. Do you see how we've all been taken by the world? The riches, the promises, the success, the let me make it my own way, the TV, the car, the house, and the list goes on. See how we got sucked into this? Yeah. Isaac didn't. He could have walked into that city. He could have made himself a Philistine. He could have lived among them, shared his wealth, made them a king. He would have been the king. He would have to take over. Get himself four or five wives. Had the time of the day. He could have done all of this. He didn't. Why should we? And in all justice, why should God treat us better than he did treat Isaac? Why? A couple more points. So, this business of the, the um, communal effect of sin is very much alive in our time. Okay, and anytime you go to a group, what we call you know, politics at work, when we go to a group and you know there's all these tensions between everybody and things are not right and it's always difficult to get something done and peace is not there and harmony isn't there, well, you know why. You know what the root cause is. Okay, there's something I wanted to point out to you, which is very interesting. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Isaac was a herder. He had sheep. He was not a farmer. But it is not uncommon for, for, uh, for herders to plant seasonally whenever necessary. Now, there is a famine, which usually means there is a drought. What does this guy do? He takes on a business that is completely outside of his field of expertise. He sowed. So Isaac, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to sow. We're going to what? Who's going to sow? We're going to sow wheat. In a drought. Yep, that's what we're going to do. You know, that's why St. Paul says that the, that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. That's what he means. He, means. he doesn't mean that God is foolish. But he means that certain times the saints of God act in ways that seem completely foolish. Right? But the foolishness, the foolishness that is of God, he acts upon faith. God said, I'll bless you. Okay, I'll sow. He sows. God didn't say go and sow wheat. He did it. What did God do? He blessed them a hundredfold. What does that mean? It means every grain of wheat brought a hundredfold. Not bad for an investment. You'd wish he'd be around today. It'd be like today somebody saying, okay, don't, don't, don't leave, stay where you are, I will bless you. And this guy invests his money on the stock market. And he reaps a hundredfold in four months. Not bad for a return. 
That's what he did. That is the blessing of God. He will give you what you need, when you need it, to the extent that you need it. It doesn't necessarily mean a little bit. It could be a lot. And there's a whole series here of of, uh, Isaac contending with the Philistines over wells. You can imagine how important the wells are. In fact, even today in Israel, the Israeli government will allow Palestinian farmers to dig up to a depth of 880 feet but will only allow the Israeli settlers to dig up to a depth of 20 to 50 feet. So the same thing that you see here is repeated today. It hasn't much changed. Water is supremely important. Now they contend with him. They fight with him. What does he do? Never once does he contend back. He let it be. He let it be. He let it be until he finds wells with whom they don't contend. And then what does he say when this happens? He only says... Verse 22, and he moved from there and dug another well, and over that they did not quarrel. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. His business was with God. He didn't harbor hate against them. He didn't detest them. He didn't have ideas of killing and none of that. He simply said, God has made room for us. He took them contending with him as the work of God in his life, pushing him to where he needs to be. That's how God was telling him, this is where you want to, where I want you to be. And there, there, there where he, he went. And God was with him. And again he told him, Fear not, for I am with you, and will bless you, and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. Another really important point. Notice, he tells him, I'm going to do all this for my servant Abraham's sake. This is how the intercession of the saints work. This is not a Catholic invention of the Middle Ages. It is in Scripture. He is, he is blessing him for Abraham's sake. And so it is with us. You are not alone. Don't just count on yourself. Think about your entire lineage. Think about all the people that came before you who carried the faith. How many of those are in heaven right now? How many of those are interceding for you right now? How many of the things you receive, you are receiving for their sake? You are not alone. And above all, you have the mother of God. Truly, you are blessed. If you only knew the blessings of God. And so they come and they sign a covenant with him. Recognizing not just his wealth. Which they've seen earlier. They knew he was wealthy. But now they know he is the blessed of God. Why? They pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. He never reacted violently. And God blessed him. They could plainly see through his action the work of God. That's what your life should be about. Somebody should come to you and say, Wow, when I see you do what you do, I know that God exists. That's what they should be saying. I think I told you the story about this woman who, was, uh, who had Alzheimer. And her husband was with her. And there was a younger woman who was uh, volunteering and driving them to a restaurant. And every two women, this woman who's having Alzheimer, would turn around and say, Where are we going? And her husband said, Well, dear, we are going to this restaurant. Said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And two minutes later, Where are we going? 
And the same thing. So the woman, the, the young the woman driving them was just going nuts over this. Because, you know, it's just every time she would say the same thing and he would always repeat it with the same gentle and caring tone. And eventually this woman had, you know, the disease took over completely and she forgot who he was. She didn't even remember him. But one day she looked at him and she said, you know, I don't know who you are, but you're the best. This is it. This is it, right there. The grace of God. Even in that situation where she could not remember who He is, she could still see the grace of God shining through Him. You're the best. You know, as, as married, if you're married, then your goal would be that when you die, your spouse would write on your tombstone, He was the best. She was the best. That's what you're looking for. Right? That's right there. And that's what's going on here. They're telling him, you're the best. And he obliges them and throws a feast because this is how you sign a covenant. He signs the covenant with them and let them go. One last point. There is a part here that seems to be inserted out of nowhere. Right? The last verses. 34, 35. So, 33. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Alright. 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took to wife Judith. No transition, nothing. You know, what, what's, what's this is doing here? So he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And the next verse, very terse, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So what did, what did Esau do? Step number one. What did he do? He took two wives. And he took them amongst whom? The Hittites. People with whom you're not supposed to have any dealings. So he breaks the covenant. He breaks it both ways. He takes two wives and he takes them among the Hittites. Okay? Why do you suppose he's doing that? What's he got on, the mind, on his mind? What's on the mind of Esau? Pardon? Worldly pleasures, yeah, something else though, behind the worldly pleasures. Rebellion. No. Yeah, but what, what, why? Why the union with it? What is, he, what is he after? It's the usual story. He's after what Cain was after. Right? The firstborn part that he had despised in an earlier chapter. He's basically positioning himself already to be the boss. Because he wants heirs. He's already going down that path. How do we know that? They made life bitter with Isaac and Rebekah. Why did they make life bitter to Isaac and Rebekah? Because they did not recognize them anymore as the um, head of that tribe. Esau was the recognized leader in their eyes. That's what this is about. And it's the preparation was going to happen in the following chapter. Right? So there's this contrast between what, what Isaac did and what Esau did. Right? Very strong. And there is where you see effectively the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. God in the old covenant gave special graces to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Joseph. They were personal. 
non-repeatable, non-transmittable. What was personal back then is universal today. All of us get the same and more. And in our case, we can bless our children with those blessings. They participate in the same grace. That's the difference. Why am I saying this? Because Esau is the son of Isaac. He's the legitimate son of Isaac. He is not the son of anybody else. He's the same. He's the legitimate son, just as Jacob is the legitimate son. And yet, he gets nothing. None of the graces come to him. Because that was the lot of humanity apart from Christ. That is the lot today of humanity apart from Christ. So, reflect on the graces you have received. Reflect on how much you've received, how much you can give. And simply ask yourself these questions. What am I doing to show Jesus that I'm serious about my faith? What am I doing to show Jesus that I'm serious about His church? If you were to focus on these two questions and seriously take small steps in that direction, God will bless you. Always. He will be with you. He will guide you. He will lead you. And will share with you your life so that you can get a share of His life. That's the plan. God bless you. Yeah, this is a very good question. So it sounds that uh, faith and reason were in, entered in conflict when God said what he said. The, 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 the fundamental point to keep in mind is that faith and reason do not conflict as to the outcome. So when, you, when everything is said and done and you look at it, you find harmony between faith and reason. But it doesn't necessarily mean that when you're going through the action, you're going through something... That during that time, there may seem to be an artificial separation between faith and reason. Example, perfect example, is the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus knew Lazarus was dead. He waited four days. On Martha and Mary's side, who knew who Jesus was, they were wondering, why isn't he here? Doesn't he care for Lazarus? It seemed as if there was a conflict. They could not understand why Jesus was doing what he was doing, that they, yet they believed. Right? And when he arrived, the reconciliation happened when Lazarus was raised. Okay? So, whenever you look at the end result of something, faith and reason never conflict. But as you go through something, God will test you by obscuring from your reason all truth. So that your faith may be exercised. Make sense? Yes. Well, what, I wanted to, what I wanted to say, uh, the question is, uh, I spoke about the covering of the head for the woman. And what am I saying to the men? I'm saying to the men, you just don't, you just don't lay the weight on your wife. You do the research with them. That's all I meant. Yeah. Not that, yet, no, not they have to cover themselves. They have to uncover themselves. No. The interesting thing about this whole business is that nobody disputes the necessity for men to uncover their heads when they enter the church. That is okay. There's no problem there. Right? In fact, we would all look, we'd, we'd, we'd feel strange if a guy shows up and, you know, he's got one of those uh, high hat, right? And he just keeps it in church. We'd look at him kind of odd, right? We expect people to, un- we expect men to uncover, right? But it's the covering 
of the hair for uh, the head for the woman. Now that is a different story. And you just leave it at that. Yes. Good question. What is our birthright today? Let's start right there. What does the birthright mean for us today? What is our birthright? Baptism. That's it. Right? We are all firstborns before God. In baptism. So when do we give it up? Of course we can. No, 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 no. When you commit a mortal sin, you just gave it up. Yes, that's the amazing thing about confession. God makes it possible for us to come back. In their case, there was nothing he could have done. And you'll see when we get to it, when Isaac gives that blessing, and Esau comes and he's pleading with his father, give it to me, give it to me. You understand now why he wants it, right? He says, I'm sorry, son. The blessing is gone, and there is nothing I can do about it. In our case, we can be like guys stuck in that revolving door. In and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. All our lives because of confession. That's the amazing baptism, uh, grace of confession. Yes. Ah, very good question. I said, if you, if you live according to the covenant, you reap according to the covenant. How did Isaac reap that uh, with Esau? He didn't. It was only with Jacob. Because that's the difference between what you see in the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant does not have in it the power of grace. It only has in it the power of either personal um, friendship with God that is given to some people or material wealth and security. There is no communication of grace that takes place. No, it's completely lacking. That's why it's the shadow of the reality which is the new covenant. That's the big difference between the two. Make sense? In the case of Jacob, that covenant is transmitted because the covenant must flow through one line. Right? By all nations, your, um, uh, by your seed shall all nations be blessed. Why? Because it has to carry forward to Jesus Christ. That's its purpose. Once it satisfies its purpose, it has no purpose anymore. Right? The difference with the new covenant, it carries those grace. Yeah? Yes. Oh, how can we be certain everything that happens in our life is a result of our action and relationship? It doesn't. That, that is not, if I, said, if I said that, I did not mean it. I meant that everything that happens in our life is as a result of our interaction with God based on the covenant. That's the, the key. So God establishes the covenant, and it's up to us then to act accordingly. And he said it. This is how I'm going to. He gave his word in saying, if you obey my covenant, I will bless you. If you don't, I will curse you. It is his word that gives full meaning to the actions in our lives. Not our actions alone. Very good question. When people contracept, what they have done? What, 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 did, what do they do when they contracept? They, they're saying to God, precisely to the Holy Spirit, we don't want you around. Why do we know that? From the creed. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, not the conditional giver of life, not the temporary giver of life, not the giver of life when we want it, the giver of life. So when we contracept, we say to the Holy Spirit, no, we're going to replace that sentence in the creed with, we believe, right, 
in practical contraception, right? the controller of life. That's what we have done. We've changed our pro- profession of faith. That's what we have done. So God says, because He gave us free will, I respect your decision. And I will give you what you want. Instead of giving you what you need. Right? So we get what we want. And that carries its results. Why? Because when the Holy Spirit moves away from our family, we're back under which covenant? The old. And just as I said, grace doesn't carry forward. When grace doesn't carry forward, what are we left with? We're left with fallen human nature. That has a tendency to what? Selfishness, rebellion, weakness, and all these things flower in our children. And so when they grow, and they've grown their life into this thing, and we are old, why should they act any differently towards us when we were selfish and we said, we're going to control life. Okay, you controlled life when it was your time. Now it's our time to control life. Do you see it now? Yeah? Yes. Very good question. Does this mean that when parents uh, done that without knowledge of it, will their children grow without any knowledge of the faith? You see, that's where it gets complicated. So my take here is what, we must, what must we do? Right? I do not want, wish to speak of the mercy of God in general, because obviously I don't know it. And God's mercy is beyond our limits. And furthermore, we have intercessions of all the saints. Maybe there is a holy grandma out there, right, who wields a very long staff. Okay? And who knows what she can ask from God? Who knows? But, we, but, but that's beyond our control. Let's look at it objectively. They didn't know. Okay. Every sin has two parts. There's the objective fact, and there's the subjective fact. That is true of everything. A kid is playing in your street and breaks your window. Right? He basically shot the ball, and he didn't even see where the ball went. He got no clue where it went. The, window went through your window, uh, the, the ball went through your window and broke it. He doesn't even know it. The window's broken. Has injustice been committed? Objectively. Yes, the window's broken. So, apart from how he feels what he knows, objectively, this is broken. You see it? Okay, when they contracept, objectively, a serious sin is committed. Yeah? The fact that they don't know it might lessen the punishment. Punishment. But what happens to the covenant, objectively? There you go. Now, their kids are not going to receive the inflow of grace. Does this mean that automatically it will not, they will not be able to grow in it? No, because of that grandma. Because of some intercession. Because of who knows what. Our lady might say, I claim those children. And Jesus will say, whatever you want, mom, they're yours. Right? All of that can happen. But is it in our control? No. Right? That's why you don't see me mention it that often. Because I can't, what, what do you want me to do with this? God can completely bypass all the laws of the universe, all the laws He gave to His church, all the laws He told us to obey. And He can act completely outside of them. He is God. But that's not what Scripture is teaching us. 
Make sense? At the end of the day, what I'm really trying to do is impress upon you the mechanics of the covenant. Because once you start acting it covenantly, one, it gets in there, and it starts to impact your life, everything changes. And truly, graces flow in your life. Then you start worrying about your virtues. Then you start thinking, how am I living before God? Then you start thinking, am I understanding the teachings of the church? Then you start thinking, okay, I am really seeking God's blessing, and all your life changes. You become truly daughters and sons of the Catholic Church. And then I've done my job, I can go home. Make sense? Okay, yes. Uh, we have a reconciliation. Hopefully, it's not revolving. I didn't mean it that all of us are revolving. I hope not. But I'm saying in the worst case, it could be a revolving door. We have reconciliation. So when we go to God with contrition in our heart, right? right? Jesus, I'm really sorry. I didn't know. I didn't know. I'm sorry I didn't know. I should have known. Okay, not enough to say I didn't know. Recognize that your ignorance is also due to your own responsibility. I didn't take, what does that mean? I didn't take your church seriously. Okay, I'm going to change this. If you get out of, that, out of that confessional and you don't put a plan in place to study and learn and understand and share what you know with others, how could he take you seriously? You see? But if you do, his grace is super abundant. And you don't know what will happen later, how it can completely change everything. Look at St. Rita, what she was able to do with her husband and her two boys. And so many other saints. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Oh, very good question. Yeah, yeah. So you go to confession and you keep on repeating the same sin. The same sin over and over again. Like this guy, right? You remember the story? The guy who went to the priest and says, Father, forgive me. Um, yes, my son, I've stolen a pig. Okay, are you willing to return the pig? No, I can't. Why? I've eaten it. Well, are you willing to make reparation? Sure, I'll do that. How much? Give back $35. That'll work. Sure, Father, I will. Next week. Father, uh, forgive me. I've sinned. Yes, my son, I've stolen a pig. Weren't you here last week? Yes, I was, Father. Well, what happened? Well, you told me to make reparation. Yes. So I went back to the farmer, gave him 70 bucks and stole another pig. It was worth it. Right? Okay. So a guy, <laughs> one ear out of the other. He didn't get it. Right? Why? No contrition. Right? The problem is that our heart is hardened. Our heart is made out of a stone. So, we first recognize, okay, I'm not doing the right thing. I need to change it. That entails a change of heart. I'm going to change this heart of heart into a heart of flesh. Guess what? Rule of thumb, as long as you've been committing that sin, if it's been 10 years, that's how long it's going to take to get out of it. Right? That's being realistic. All right? Because through it all, God is going to teach you Humility. He's going to teach you contrition. He's going to make you really long for the promised land. Right? He's going to sh- you're going to show your fidelity. You're, it's humiliating. So you have to. Do, oh, by the way, I recommend you always go to the same priest. Don't uh, shop around for different priests. Always the same priest. And tell him, tell him up front, Father, I'm going to come to you, and you're going to hear me confess this over and over again. Just tell him. Don't be afraid. Don't be shy. Right? And just keep at it. Keep at it. Keep at it. And God will work His grace in your life. And oh, by the way, join the club. Okay? Uh, hold on. Yes. Both. I'm talking about the, 
the sins that affect the society at our own, during our own time, and the generational sins, the sins that go down generations, both. Right? And in Scripture, you'll find both. God will say that, but he also say it's personal responsibility for sin. So it's not one or the other, it's both. And how do we reconcile them is a different story, but it's both. Okay, I just want to stress that point. Yes. Why did Jesus say, let the dead bury the dead? Very simple. Uh, the man came to him and says, I want to follow you. To follow Jesus, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means a complete change of life. I renounce the past, and I will come and live the way you live. When you make that statement, you can't tell him, I'm not worried about the things of the past. This man obviously was still worried about honor and position and doing the right thing in the eyes of men. And he's saying, I want to follow you. It'd be like somebody going to St. Francis and saying, St. Francis, I really want to live like you. I want to follow you. Live exactly like you do. But you know, I got this Kodiak shoes I want to keep. It doesn't work. So that's the point of Jesus. He was making a really stark statement saying, you got to see the way it is. Right? The time you're spending with these people is not time spent with me. So don't tell me you want to follow me. If it was a situation where he's burying uh, Lazarus, he would not have said that. Yeah? Oh, absolutely. Oh, but it, Yeah, remember, the, grace is never dependent on anybody. In a, sense, in, a sense, in a sense that there are no secrets that you can discover to bring about grace. Like somebody call up lightning. Right? The, so it's again this magical notion that it really depends on me for grace to flow. Right? Grace always flows. Grace always flows because this is God's intent. This is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross through which grace flows. There's a difference between the grace that is flowing and the grace that is abiding. Grace can flow through me to you and it does nothing to me. Perfect example, Judas. He was one of the disciples. He probably raised the dead. He did miracles. He fed the poor. Did the whole thing. What good did it do him? You see? Yeah, so we have to be careful. Again, it isn't about the question of, I can, on my own, call grace, and if I don't, grace doesn't come. No. It doesn't depend on me. But, St. Thomas Aquinas, to your point, teaches that the efficacy of the Mass, so the Mass has an integral efficacy that doesn't depend on any of us because it depends on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Now, how does it reach us? How does it reach us? It depends on the holiness of the reigning pontiff, on the holiness of the bishop, on the holiness of the priest, and on the holiness of the congregation. The congregation. Alright? And when you have 70% of the congregation that is contracepting, welcome to our world. Alright? The efficacy of the Mass depends on the holiness of the reigning pontiff, the holiness of your bishop, the holiness of your priest, and the holiness of the congregation. That's the efficacy of the Mass. How is the Mass able to reach the lives of the people. Grace flows exactly the same, non-stop. But there are blockages along the way. Do you understand? Not it could, it does. It affects. Oh yeah, exactly. Always valid. But the, remember, Mass isn't just the Eucharist. There are graces attached to the Eucharist. Mass is not just the Eucharist. I'm talking about the full liturgy of Mass. Right? We shouldn't reduce Mass to the Eucharist. 
Because remember, the church requires us to go to Mass every Sunday. The church does not require us to receive communion every Sunday. Right? It's the worship. Remember, what is Mass? It's an act of justice to begin with. Because in it, we give God what is His due. And when we are sinful, or the priest is sinful, or the bishop is sinful, or the pope is sinful, we are not as united with Christ. So we're not able to give to God His due. We become effectively unjust. That's again where we need to find out what God wants from us. Because in the case of Ezekiel, when he saw this vision he, about the destruction of Jerusalem in 567 AD, he said to the angel of destruction, do not do anything until I send my angels and I seal those who sigh, who sigh over uh, what, what is going on. The, those who believe in me and are just sighing. Those guys didn't go anywhere. Because you know what? There was no other temple to go to. Right? But they were sealed and protected precisely because of their true faithfulness and love of God. Right? Pardon? They were protected from despairing. They were protected from letting go of their love. They were protected from, their, um, uh, from um, letting go of their faith. They received special protection that through all these events of the destruction of the temple, they maintained faith, hope, and love. Okay? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.